Hey guys, welcome back to Your Purpose is Beauty. I'm so happy to be here another Monday with you and I'm super, super excited about today's episode. It's one that I wanted to do very early on in the podcast. It's a topic I get lots of questions on because I'm sort of a black sheep in the alternative beauty space because I just have a lot of alternative views on nutrition. So we're gonna get into a lot of that today. I actually did a poll on Instagram. I wanted to know if people were more interested in hearing this episode on traditional foods and how it's informed how I feed myself now and choose to feed my family. Or I've been getting a lot of requests to to do a skincare episode or YouTube video specifically about pregnancy or postpartum skin or just generally sensitive or reactive skin, which is a skin type that I kind of vacillate in and out of. And I know skincare content is always kind of the most popular thing for people. So the poll went 60-40 in favor of this episode. And I'm going to do both. I'm going to do the skincare pregnancy postpartum sensitive skincare episode at some point too. But this is just going to be the one that I prioritize, obviously, because it's the one you're hearing today. If you haven't had a chance, I hope that you'll go check out the interview that I did last week with Marie from And the Color Green. We had such a great conversation about a lot of, you know, kind of controversial things that are going on in the beauty space right now, a lot of the backlash that has arisen over the last couple months to the green beauty movement. And I think Marie just has such an important voice in this conversation. I'm really energized by her new project, Green Beauty Theory. So go check out that episode if you want to hear all about that. I hope Marie will come back on the podcast soon. Just a little bit of disclaimer before we get into today's episode. So talking about food and nutrition is highly, highly personal and individual. So please, I it's never my intention to offend anybody. I do have some somewhat controversial opinions on this, but I just hope that this will all be taken in the spirit of collectively learning from each other. And also, as we know, I am not a doctor. I am not a medical professional. I am not a health professional. I am a PhD sociologist, and I apply my research skills to how I review beauty and wellness. So I'm, you know, I'm just a you know regular consumer, health seeker, information seeker, and it's really, really difficult to wade through a lot of the competing agendas and narratives and information that's out there. So all I'm going to do is let you know how I've come to where I am today and hope that we can just have a bigger conversation about what health means to each of us and how we go about seeking health. Let's take a quick break before we get into all of this. Olivia is an exclusive prebiotic plant-based skincare line designed to feed the beneficial microbes living on our skin. I've been trying the Orchid Body Cleanse and it's great for people with sensitive body skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis, yet gentle enough for all skin types. Acadian Sea Kelp and Dead Sea Salt work as a prebiotic, helping skin to restore and repair itself. Visit Olivia.com and use the code LAMOUR15 for 15% off your order. That's L-A-M-O-U-R-15 and save 15%. To understand how I got to this point where I basically developed the complete opposite approach to health than what is pushed down our throats under mainstream nutritionism. I feel like I have to share a bit of my history and backstory because, you know, now at 37 years old, I look back on the decades of everything I kind of went through. And it's important. And it would be sound so out of context if I just started talking about how, you know, I think butter is a health food and we drink whole milk and I give baby Lamour cream and bone marrow and, you know, all of this stuff. So I like, and I'm sure many, many people, but mostly women listening can relate. I started patterns of yo yo dieting, you know, around adolescence. And these were, lifestyle habits and attitudes that were really passed down to me from the women in my family. So this is not novel. It's not something I even really want to belabor because it's just such an old, tired narrative, you know, like seeing Dexatrim pills laying around your house or having a parent that was always on a diet and unhappy with how they looked. 
yeah, that matters, but it, and it, it totally affected my adolescence and, and it well into my twenties, but I just, I feel like such a different person now. And I guess I don't even, I don't know. I'm like, I don't even want to talk about it, but it is important to know as part of the story. So I started yo-yo dieting and when I was a teenager, um, I kind of went through a lot of ins and outs of lots of different kinds of disordered eating, eating disorders, whatever you want to call them. And by the time I was in my early 20s, right after college, I started getting really identified with the vegetarian and vegan movement. I remember reading Jonathan Safran Foer's book, I think it's called Eating Animals, and it's basically a philosophical plea on morally why we shouldn't eat animals. I was very into kind of all aspects of that movement and all aspects that really, I think, pervade the movement today. Although... I don't portend to speak on on who is a part of the vegan identity or movement because I've been so not a part of it for over a decade now, probably, or the last eight or 10 years. But I was into all of it. You know, I was into the health reasons. I was convinced that I was lactose intolerant. I was very into the animal rights aspect of it. And I had so many vegetarian and vegan cookbooks. And then from there, I actually even got into raw foodism. This was like around the mid-2000s, like 2005, 2006. Now, mind you, I was living in Burlington, Vermont and trying to eat raw food. I mean, it's so whack to think about now. But I mean, I, I was going through a lot of other things in my life at that time too, and it was very it's very obvious to me in retrospect that this was just an outlet for me or a diversion for me from dealing with other really really unpalatable things that that I was going through at that time also my health was really not good i would gain a bunch of weight and lose a bunch of weight i was depressed i just was having a lot a lot of issues so Things kind of started to turn for me around 2007. I started graduate school at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island in August of 2007. And it was really the best thing that could have happened to me at the time, just given kind of things that were going on in my personal and my family life. I had kind of gotten over some of my really acute food neuroses, but I was still wavering in and out of different disordered eating patterns that I don't really feel like getting into here just because they're so personal, but I was still using food as an outlet. But I started graduate school in 2007, You know, immediately found a really strong sense of community there and things kind of started to get better um, in my personal life and I had the structure of graduate school. However, Around, I'm trying to remember exactly when this was. I think it was the summer of 2008 going into the fall of 2008. I decided kind of, I had been thinking about it for a while. And I think a lot of women who maybe started taking hormonal birth control in their late teens or, you know, when they went to college, I feel like that's a really common time to start. Although I don't know. I mean, maybe people are starting, maybe women are starting that sooner and sooner. I had been on and off different kinds of hormonal birth control, um, the birth control pill and the Nuva Ring specifically through my, like that time, my like late teens and early 20s, mid 20s. And around 2008, I decided I wanted to stop taking it and just see what would happen. You know, it's, I think you get to this point where you're like, gosh, I just kind of have this yearning to know what my body is like not on synthetic hormones. And I feel like the birth control, hormonal birth control has become so normalized. And part of my big waking up process was that internal questioning of like, hey, maybe this isn't right for me or it's not right for me anymore. I promise this all relates to food too, by the way. I'm just taking a little diversion. So I stopped taking all hormonal birth control in the fall of 2008. And I wasn't really prepared for what was going to happen I actually have done a whole video on YouTube about this. I will, of course, link it in the show notes. But basically, my period never came back and I didn't have a period for a year. I was giving it some time. I wanted to see, you know, I I had heard that it was not that uncommon for it to take some time for your system to kind of, you know, come back online. But in retrospect, coupled with all of the food issues and and eating issues that I was having, they kind of all caught up with me. Very interestingly, 
now that I'm into astrology, I'm a practicing Hellenistic astrologer, it coincided with my Saturn return. So a Saturn return can be kind of a first big reckoning in somebody's life that generally happens around anywhere from age 27 to 29. And it lasts for a couple of years because Saturn moves so slowly. I should go back and date exactly when my transit started activating, but it was all around this same time. So I didn't get a period for a year. I was periodically going into the Graduate Student Health Center at Brown. They didn't really have anything to tell me as as such a common narrative for people that go to a Western medical doctor for something that has a complex underlying etiology. They just don't really have protocols in place to treat that. So they basically said, it's really bad for you to not be menstruating. So we can put you back on the birth control pill, which will generate a period, or we can start thinking about doing an ultrasound. I did not fit the profile at all for someone that would have like PCOS or something like that. I also knew that that was not what was going on with me. As luck would have it, you know, kind of divine timing, or these are the the moments in your life too, where I don't know. You just think that there's unseen forces that are guiding you in different directions. So I had a really good friend in graduate school. She was doing a master's of public humanities and we were very good friends. And she had a friend who was in or had been in a American studies PhD program at Brown. I had known this person. She was like a friend of a friend. She decided after she had completed her master's that she wanted to become an acupuncturist. And as luck would have it, right around the time I was experiencing these health problems, she was just starting her practice. The priority of her practice or the specialty of this friend of a friend's practice was women's health. She had had a long-standing history in reproductive justice and working in reproductive health clinics and women's health and things like that. So I didn't really know much about acupuncture except that I felt really drawn to it. So I got the introduction. I communicated with the acupuncture. She was like, please come in right away. We'll start working on your cycles. So I see her and within, I think, a month and a half, I was going weekly. Within six treatments, my period came back. This was after a year of not having a period. I was elated. I was overjoyed and I was completely committed to continuing to see this acupuncturist because I knew that my body was all kinds of imbalanced. And and the real issue that was going on is that I was incredibly, incredibly blood deficient, which is a really common thing actually for women and is really exacerbated by diet and not getting enough nourishing foods in your diet. So I was very, very, very lucky in that Rhode Island is one of the very few states in the country where they will, where acupuncturists can bill insurance for acupuncture treatments. So I was able to see an acupuncturist weekly the entire time I was in graduate school for, I think, like a $10 copay. It was such a wonderful benefit and something that I'm so thankful for to this day. So... I was seeing this acupuncturist regularly every week. And after some of the acute stuff, like basically once I had a period, it was then an issue of the long, long process of rebuilding my body from years and years and years of deficiency, from not eating enough food, the wrong foods, not metabolizing food correctly, not being able to turn food into appropriate chi. And my body was just like such a complete, a complete mess in retrospect. My longtime acupuncturist who still practices in Providence, Rhode Island, who I talk to regularly, who I look up to so much, she has been such a pivotal person in my own personal health journey, was very and is to this day very, very passionate and educated and informed about a traditional foods lifestyle. So she, and I think she also came from an animal rights vegan background, but Anyone that comes from that background and then gets educated in Chinese medicine, I think very quickly learns that the two things are at odds for most people. So it wasn't an immediate overnight thing for me. You know, and reflecting back, I was seeing this acupuncturist for several years and she was having to kind of work on me to get me mentally and emotionally in a place where I was ready to eat meat again. That's like how far off the reservation I had gone. 
And I remember we had this, it's since closed, but there was this amazing, amazing cheese shop and restaurant on the east side of Providence called La Lotterie. And I think it was Farmstead. And the restaurant was called La Lotterie, the creamery in French. And they had a grass-fed burger where the meat was coming from this wonderful farm in, in Southern Rhode Island. And she was like, Mercedes, can you go to La Lotterie and get one of their burgers, medium rare, and you know, just take a bite and like tell me what you think? And the more that I got acupuncture, the more I think as my body was kind of naturally coming back into balance, I was starting to get back in touch with what I my body really needed. So I started thinking about meat and it started sounding really good again. And I finally decided to go do it. And I have never felt more nourished. I mean, I remember eating that burger to this day. It was nourishing on every plane of existence you can imagine. Mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, it was just a complete turning point for me. And mind you, this was after, you know, over a year of acupuncture and I finally decided to kind of get on board with some of her nutritional recommendations. So from there, when I saw how much better I felt after starting to eat meat again, it was kind of a no-brainer that this was the direction that I needed to go. So I started educating myself. This was now, I want to say, you know, maybe 2011, 2010, 2011. I started just doing a lot of my own research. I learned a lot from my acupuncturist. She really encouraged me to start looking into the Weston A. Price Foundation to Sally Fallon's book called Nourishing Traditions. She directed me to where I could get raw milk in the area, you know, farms that carried the best quality meats, all of this kind of stuff. And I was also on and off different Chinese herbal formulas at the time too. I guess I should mention that. So I would say from around 2011 to when I finished graduate school, which was, or maybe I was, yeah, like 2010, 2011 through 2013, 2014 was my re-education into what it meant to nourish my body. I completely recovered from any disordered eating patterns I had, but again, it wasn't something that happened overnight. And that's why... I'm to this day such a devotee of acupuncture because it, for me, and I can only speak for myself, I think everybody responds differently to different kinds of health treatments, but any kind of healing modality that's going to bring not just your physical body, but your subtle energy bodies into more alignment and balance, and this is something that happens over time, I feel that it takes a lot of the mental efforting that goes on to, for example, quote, eat healthy. You get more in touch with what your body is naturally telling you. And a lot of that anxiety and mental efforting goes away. So this whole time period, I was just going through this really, really profound re-education and reteaching myself basically how to eat. And everything just started to feel much more balanced. And I just physically started to feel much, much better. Again, it was a process of probably over five years though. So it was not a quick fix. And there's no silver bullet. It's a kind of work that you put in every day. So I just wanted to share some of the resources that were really formative for me in this time. However, I don't think that they're really relevant today. So, you know, I as I'm saying, I was in this re-education phase in this period. And from there, after I graduated uh, with my PhD in 2013, and really to present day, I can't believe like here we are, 2020, I've kind of been in maintenance or coast mode, I guess you could say. So I don't seek out a lot of new information on this thing. I still see an acupuncturist to this day, and I'm going to tell you about how what I learned in that time period has informed how we eat today, but it's an it's an evolving process and I, you know, I don't do things perfectly now. There's always things that I want to work on and do better. And the most of the research that I active research that I do today is on baby nutrition because after I had a baby in November of 2018, Introducing foods and really trying to set the best stage I can for my baby has been um, my main priority and actually to my own health detriment, which is a whole other topic. 
that if I have time, I'll get into. So some of the the things that I was reading, I've mentioned them already. Weston A. Price, the Weston A. Price Foundation, while you know potentially somewhat controversial, I think among some circles, I think is a wonderful resource for just learning about what eating a nutrient-dense diet means. I don't agree or adhere to everything that they promote. Like we don't eat organ meats, for example. And it's, I, I don't know, my thoughts on that are somewhat complicated, but I'm a really big proponent of full fat dairy, raw dairy if possible, although it's very, very difficult to get. Pastured meats, obviously. And then there's a whole bunch of lifestyle things that also factor into Weston A. Price ideals like appropriate sun exposure so that your body can produce its own vitamin D, you know, things like that. Now, some of the resources that I'm going to tell you about have since been critiqued for peddling a lot of pseudoscience. Now, this is a much, much bigger conversation that we're seeing playing out in the eco-green beauty space. I don't follow the eco well. There was a period of time where I was listening to that podcast, but the whole account annoys me to no end the way that it's positioned to make everybody who questions mainstream science feel like an idiot, I think is so messed up and wrong. But The Healthy Home Economist and Cheese Slave were two blogs that I followed on a lot. And I know that The Healthy Home Economist I don't follow her as much anymore, and I know that she gets critiqued for peddling a lot of pseudoscience. So please just keep that in mind. Just keep an open mind. There's a lot of competing agendas. There's a lot of hidden agendas here. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the only I get into this, it's not really a fight, but like this debate with people and even friends in real life, the only person you can really trust is yourself. You can assess all of the information that's out there and digest it and do what makes sense for you. Whether or not someone is telling you it's not scientifically proven or it is scientifically proven, I mean, these topics are so, so complex and not really, it's not really the point of this episode to distill that or unpack that, but I'm just telling you what made sense for me. So those were really great resources. Cheese Slave no longer blogs, but I think she has an, it was, I actually mostly followed them for recipes and informational stuff, not as much like their alternative health ideas, which I think like are, can be kind of whack. But I remember making their bone, I was starting to make bone broth at that time. I was starting to do a lot of home fermentation projects using whey that I had separated from raw milk that I had gotten from a farm just outside the Rhode Island border in Southern Massachusetts. I was making beet kvass, which is such a nourishing blood tonic. And I was really, at the time too, I guess it would also make sense in knowing that I was writing a dissertation on the alternative food movement in Rhode Island. And I was researching things like urban homesteading. So I was implementing a lot of those things in my life because they made a lot of sense to me. I wanted to get into baking my own bread. I don't think I ever really did. In In fact, I started taking a bunch of French patisserie classes because I was really interested in that. I mean, I guess it could be considered nourishing in another sense, but using quote unquote regular ingredients like white flour and sugar, that was just a whole other foray that I was really, really interested in and still am. Trying to reconcile all those things has actually been very difficult for me. My love for French patisserie and baking and my feelings about how important nutrient-dense traditional foods are. So there's room, I think, for all of it, but that's something that I'm always kind of working out and iterating on in my head. Fortunately, I think a lot of this kind of information about the importance of nutrient-dense foods and more traditional methods of food preparation, like soaking and sprouting grains or using whey to ferment things or eating nose to tail, those things have had a more popular resurgence, I think, in recent years. I think they're much more, I guess you could even say trendy in some circles. I mean... I'm not, I've never really dabbled in the paleo or keto communities. That's something else that when things coalesce around a movement is when they can tend to get somewhat problematic in my opinion. So I just try and like stay in my lane and see what's interesting and what makes sense for me and now for my family. But I think one of the main things I wanted to bring up before I tell you about kind of what our diet and food procurement practices look like around here, which are such a work in progress. And when you have a baby, I think you kind of go into somewhat of survival mode and you certainly don't do things perfectly, right? But I always have my goals and and ideals that I'm working towards. So... I think probably the most controversial thing that I'm going to say in this whole episode is that I just want to 
open up this conversation around the possibility that some of what you may see or even internalize and apply to your own life about the vegetarian and vegan plant-based movement. So interestingly, you know, I get messages from people when I raise these sorts of topics online about like how pro I am eating pastured meat and and nourishing foods and drinking whole milk. I get messages from people who are like, gosh, like it's so different from what I hear in the green or eco beauty space because I think people see such a natural alignment with the healthy lifestyle of eating vegan, eating clean, drinking green juice, eating poke bowls or acai bowls or kale salad, you know, like the stereotypical quote unquote healthy things. And while I think that there's more of a questioning of that, I think that that is still the predominant thing that people associate with wellness. And I hear from people who say, you know, I eat a plant-based lifestyle, but I don't use the label vegan because I don't like what that connotes, or I don't feel comfortable with how that community acts or the stances that they take, which I mean, truthfully are really quite myopic in a lot of ways. I And the point of this is not to cut people down who do identify with those movements, but I do think, you know, we all have blind spots, right? And on a very, very basic level, I think it's important to recognize all of us have to eat. We are all resource-consuming human beings. And I think the argument is that, well, if you eat a plant-based diet, then you are consuming less resources and you're doing something good for the environment and the planet. Breaking down the economics of that are exceedingly complicated and I'm not really convinced, I guess, that that's true. It depends on how you define and parameterize, put parameters around those things, how you measure it. And I just want to lay out this very controversial idea. I feel like whenever you go against what I could consider to be a somewhat controlled opposition movement like the vegan movement, if you raise questions about that narrative and what underlines it, it's it's like the proper progressive platform, right? You know, don't eat animals, save the environment. If you raise questions to that, then people come at you, right? And and they label you a conspiracy theorist and you get harassed. And I I don't want that, right? Like I don't want to fight with people online. I don't want people coming after me. I don't want people leaving me hate messages. Like nobody wants that. So I think what I wanted to say is I would just really consider alternative ideas about the narratives that eating plant-based is saving the environment. I just think it is so much more complex than that. And really, to me, it becomes this this Malthusian question, right? Which is, you know, we're, we are resource-consuming humans and the problems of the environment, to some extent, do fall on the fact that it's a population resource-consuming question. And I think we're trying to solve problems through how we consume resources. And I think that that's part of it. But I personally just wanted to say that I have been exploring alternative ideas and very, 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 very fringe and probably, you know, will never be accepted widely in the mainstream ideas about climate change. And yeah, I just, I personally have a very bad taste in my mouth about how the vegan agenda and what I would consider to be propaganda is pushed. And an account that I follow that you could check out is Primal Edge Health. His name is Tristan and he lives off the grid with his wife and two children in, um, they're in, I think they're in South America, maybe Central America. I can't remember exactly where they are, but I've been following him for a really long time. In recent years, he's gotten very, very, very fringe, but I follow him just for that alternative perspective. He's extremely outspoken against the plant-based movement. And it's just an alternative perspective. And that's the only reason I'm raising it. He basically says that we as human beings are being made to feel bad morally for being resource-consuming humans. And he presents another model of regenerative farming, animal husbandry, um, living off the land. And that's obviously not tenable for the 7 billion people on this planet, right? I mean, maybe if you really play out that thought experiment, it could be, but you know, with urbanization and all of these, you know, much, much bigger population growth and spatial arrangements, 
Not everyone can live like he does. Not everyone wants to live like he does, but he has really opened my eyes a lot to some other agendas that could be going on. And I think that that's all that I wanted to present here. And I really hope it doesn't offend anybody because I think we all have the best intentions, you know, for ourselves, for our families, for the earth, for our communities, for animals. You know, I think human beings are generally well intentioned and want to do the right thing. But I am just hypersensitive to different kinds of manipulation. And so I just wanted to point that out. I feel like I'm really <laughs> babbling on about that because I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to offend people. Why don't we talk a little bit now concretely about how we as a family eat at home? So it's myself and my partner, Kave, and our now 16-month-old baby, who I started introducing solids to between six, like right around six months, but baby Lamour didn't really take to eating solids around eight months. So that's kind of, you know, a whole other topic, how to introduce food to a baby and how I've gone about doing that. I get a lot of questions and interest about that. In very broad strokes, the most important thing that we do is I order our animal products from a farm based in Indiana. It's called Seven Sons farms. And I think that they distribute all throughout Indiana and Illinois. So I order online um, whenever I want. You have to order by Tuesday evening, I think, for me to get a meat delivery on Thursday. The prices are not that much different than Whole Foods. And it's like that next step above even like the step four meat that you can get at Whole Foods. The meat is all 100% grass-fed. I'm not even sure that they're finished on grain. Uh, Some of them might be just because of the climate. But 100% grass-fed meat, humanely treated, humanely raised, humanely slaughtered. It's a small family farm. And this is the kind of thing that I am very comfortable doing. You know, I don't want to get into the whether or not it's morally right or wrong to eat animals. That becomes um, a philosophical and to some extent a spiritual discussion. And people are just going to be at different stages of needing meat, feeling okay about eating meat, their consciousness around eating meat. I mean, that's a very, very complicated and exceedingly personal question that only someone can kind of answer. And I think it really changes too throughout the life course. And yeah, just like you need different things at different times. And constitutionally, people need different things. So I buy all of our meat, or I mean, most of our meat. We do still supplement with things from Whole Foods. So we are big on eating beef, chicken, lamb, and some wild fish. So we don't eat pork. And there's no real reason why. I just have never liked pork. I did grow up eating it. You know, we would have like pork chops and bacon and things like that. I've never liked it. I've just always been someone that gravitates more towards beef and chicken and turkey, I guess, too, to some extent. But really beef is kind of like my jam. That's what I feel like I do the best with. We could also divert and talk about that the theory that different blood types do different with different kinds of proteins. But I actually have another resource that I think is more compelling and interesting to discern constitutionally what any individual might be needing. And I'll talk about that at the end. So we don't eat pork. Kaveh actually technically is Muslim, but not practicing in like any capacity. So that's not why. We just don't eat it because I don't want to eat it, basically. I have a lot of issues with seafood. Uh, We do buy wild salmon. And if I see wild caught fish at Whole Foods, I will buy it. I wish that we could eat more shellfish like shrimp, um, for example, but it's just so, so, so heavily contaminated. And it's very difficult to get wild caught uh, shrimp and shellfish in general. So if I see it, sometimes I will get it. But for the most part, we just don't eat it. I do think mercury coming from tuna is a huge deal. I've never been a tuna fish eater. um, But I do think that that is definitely something to be cautious and aware of. So if we ever get sushi, which I'm, I'm not like in the summertime, I guess sometimes I'll eat sushi. But Um, I mostly will just get salmon or veggie rolls. Kaveh will still eat tuna rolls. And I tell him, I'm like, you really, you know, should be careful about tuna consumption. So I think that if you are at all concerned about mercury accumulation or heavy metals in your system, there are plenty of resources to get that kind of thing tested so that you can have empirical evidence of what your body burden looks like. I think part of my huge, huge issue with what's been going on with the backlash to green beauty 
and people like the EcoWell and other accounts like I think Lab Muffin Science is another one, basically doubling down on conventional cosmetic formulation. And I would, and also the EcoWell is pro GMO. I think that they're being very ignorant of the fact that there are demonstrable chemical body burdens that every single human living on the planet today has because it's just inescapable in terms of the soil that's been compromised and our food is just not as nutritious. The pesticide residue, if you're not eating organic produce all the time, which nobody, I mean, like even those of us that try and do our best, you know, it's impossible to live in a pristine environment. So just from how polluted, you know, the air, the water, the soil, I mean, and this is better or worse in different parts of the world, but no one is really immune from that. And so I feel like their rebuttal argument is, well, your body is designed to manage that toxic body burden. I mean, yeah, I guess. I guess you're not going to keel over tomorrow from eating, you know, a GMO tortilla chips or something, but the accumulated effect of that kind of thing over time, I think it is such a disservice to tell people that they shouldn't be at least aware of that, you know, and someone's work that I've been very drawn to recently about this is Zach Bush. He's a triple board certified physician who has now become, I don't really know what to call him, a champion of or a public figure around regenerative farming and rehabilitating the human microbiome. His work is really interesting. I actually found out about him from Jenna Cavello and Jani Organically. They're two people that I've been kind of averse to consuming their content in the past because some of their ideas are a little more fringe in terms of being very critical of vaccines and things like that. But I just have been in a much more like neutral space with these topics lately. I'm not pro or anti anything really, or I really try not to be. I just want to have information so that I can make my own decisions. And I feel like EcoWell would tell me, oh, well, like you're an idiot for believing something that isn't scientifically verifiable, except there is empirical evidence of chemical body burdens. And it's very, very difficult with the constraints of epidemiological science to causally link chemical body burden exposure and accumulation to an adverse outcome. I don't think people realize how difficult human randomized controlled trials or cohort studies are. First of all, it's completely unethical to have a cohort study or a randomized controlled trial, which is the gold standard of studies where some person is getting a beneficial health health treatment and some person is getting an adverse health treatment. This is why pregnant women are never allowed to be studied on because of any potential risk to an unborn child. So a lot of the science that I feel like people like the EcoWell and other accounts are pushing is very, very limited, honestly. And we just don't know because a lot of these are very new problems just in the last 10 or 20 years. So I just have always been very precautionary in that sense. One of my subspecialties in graduate school was environmental sociology. So I did a lot of work on the precautionary principle my actually my PhD advisor is a very famous environmental sociologist, Phil Brown, who runs an environmental health center at Northeastern University. And that's where I've learned a lot about body burden and biomonitoring studies. The thing is, in the US, it's very, it's a very different attitude than they have in Europe. Um, they are much more precautionary in Europe. They've been much more precautionary with respect to introducing GMOs and um, you know, other petrochemicals and things like that in food and consumer products. So very different cultures, very different attitudes towards risk. There are very, very complex, nuanced sociocultural questions that get embedded in this that get left out of the eco well. So sorry, I know I'm dumping on her. I don't even know her first name, but like I go on and watch the stories and read the content and it just like really irritates me. And I just have not had the energy to rebut in a neutral and coherent way because it's it's a lot of work honestly to sit down and put your academic hat towards kind of trying to go toe to toe with someone and I'm like is this a good use of my energy you know I don't know so that was a really long diversion let me quickly get back to other tenants of how we eat at home so short of being able to get raw milk which is uh, I guess technically illegal in Illinois 
I do think you can get it in Indiana, and apparently there are some raw milk buying clubs in Illinois, and I know it's much easier to get in other parts of the country. Milk as a... Like raw milk and the biopolitical history of milk is something I'm really, really fascinated on. I actually, I think I talked about this in my Valentine's Day episode when I was talking about how much I love whole milk and I'm like a champion for drinking whole milk and just like full fat dairy in general. And this is such a backlash to the low fat diet trend that I fell victim to and really negatively impacted my health in ways I never even anticipated when I was eating, you know, fat-free cheese and drinking skim milk when I was a teenager. This is like a really, really actually sad, but I think important thing to mention, which is I had uh, really, not like really significant, but I had breast milk supply issues after I had my baby. Now there could be other reasons why my baby was born three weeks early, had a short NICU stay, which I think impacted my ability to breastfeed. But I mean, there are other factors too. I saw a really, really amazing lactation consultant actually for like two or three visits within the first month or two of my baby being home with me. I was only ever able to produce like a half supply of breast milk through pumping, but I was really committed to pumping as much milk as I possibly could so that my baby would at least be getting some of my breast milk and the antibodies and immune support and things like that that can accompany breast milk. And I tried to get baby to latch as long as I could too, because there's, you know, the part of what makes the breast milk so like bioidentically matched to the baby is that their saliva interacts with your uh, like mammary glands, basically. Anyway, I don't know why I'm like going on this big diversion with this, but something that my lactation consultant said, and she's so amazing, I would actually highly recommend her to anyone that wants a lactation consultant in the Chicagoland area. She said that. You know, we had kind of ruled out other reasons why I might be having a struggle with breast milk supply. She was like, well, you know, it's kind of sad to say this, but your cohort, people that were teenagers when the low fat diet trend was going on, there's a correlation between having a low fat diet during puberty and the development of milk ducts. Like, I forget like the exact biology behind it like the anatomy of a breast and how your breast milk glands and things develop, eating a low-fat diet during adolescence in women has been shown to be causally related to breast milk production. So when I heard that, it was honestly like really heartbreaking, but you know, there's nothing I can do about it now. The only thing I can do is, you know, not raise my own kids like that, you know, and become a champion for you know, eating full fat foods, eating a nourishing diet, because you don't even know the kind of damage that you could be doing to your diet by not eating, a, you know, the complete constituents of foods. So one of my goals is to be able to somehow find raw dairy. I am able to get raw milk cheese. So I will order it from Seven Sons, this company that I'm telling you about. There's a dairy that I think they contract with called Twilight Dairy, and they make raw baby Swiss, raw cheddar, raw Gouda. It's delicious. I've been giving it to the baby since, I don't know, maybe eight or nine months old. If you are concerned about a lot of the fear-mongering that goes on around raw milk, I would just say be vigilant about people trying to control the narratives around what really are meant to be like very health-supporting and empowering attitudes towards food. And I have really, I think I talked about the my resources around reading about the biopolitics of milk, and I don't know. I would there was there was some really interesting food anthropology that I came across when I was doing my dissertation research. So if anyone is interested in that, I'd be happy to share further on that. So I do believe that organic food matters. I don't even I'm not even really aware of what is going on out there about people saying, oh, organic matters or it doesn't matter. In my in my heart of hearts, I know that it matters. I know that cost can be an issue for people. The dirty dozen people will prioritize. I just buy everything I possibly can organic. And it's, you know, not necessarily better from a like labor perspective. They still use migrant labor. Organic farms can mimic industrial farms from a labor sense, and they have their own other problems. But just specifically from a pesticide exposure sense, I do think that it behooves us to 
eat organic as much as possible and even better to go to a farmer's market and buy local produce. That is something that since having a baby has been very, very difficult. But one of my goals is to either get a CSA share so that I can just have it delivered to the house or really make it a part of our lifestyle to go to the farmer's market on a weekly basis. I'm not there yet. It's a goal. It's something I've done on and off in the past. And I I researched farmer's markets. I did a bunch of ethnography at farmer's markets in my dissertation. So it's a landscape or a milieu that I know really, really, really well. And I know a lot of the ins and outs of it too. And I'm very behind the mission, you know, and I think people, obviously it's just become a big part, I think of the wellness space. So I'm really happy to see that more and more people are invested in those kinds of things. As far as grains, this is something that is still kind of a work in progress Uh, for the baby. I have only been doing sprouted grains. So I think I've already been recording for too long and I don't have time to go really into depth about my approach to introducing foods to baby Lamore. The one resource I could leave you with, and I talk about this book all the time, it's called Super Nutrition for Babies, recommended by my longtime Rhode Island acupuncturist. It's by Katherine Ehrlich and Kelly Jenslinger, I think. I will list it in the show notes. I think I have the not updated version. So there is an updated version. Some of the science in it might be updated. But the main tenets are to basically delay grain introduction until basically until babies get their molars, which is supposed to be related to amylase production. Now, I have been hearing someone sent me stories from someone on Instagram, some nutrition account that was saying that the studies about amylase production in infants is actually bunk and is not true. So I personally have not had the time to go into the studies that are saying that amylase production and grains are okay for babies at starting at six months. I'm very, very cautious of this because you have to trace the research funding, right? So you always have to look at what's behind the research agendas. And honestly, as someone that sat in academia for a long time, I have seen how academic studies are biased how people data mine to fit a particular agenda. I mean, and and there have been studies that have exposed this kind of thing in very well-known academic journals. I'm not saying this, that we should never believe anything or be hypercritical, but I think it behooves us to just be on guard because the American nutrition establishment has many, many, many perverse incentives. To pretend that it doesn't is to literally be an ostrich with your head in the sand. I mean, the American nutrition establishment is deeply, deeply in bed with you know, the grain lobbies and the corn lobby and the soy lobby and basically all of those agribusiness endeavors that are here in this country and are big business. So that's why the food pyramid looked the way it did for as long as it did. I mean, and there's so much work out there on that, and that could be a whole podcast episode unto itself. So I'm very wary of that kind of work, and I just have always resonated more with these alternative perspectives. So the Super Nutrition for Babies, Sally Fallon Morrell, I think is her full name, also has a book. It's basically a nourishing traditions book for babies. And both of them say that one should start introducing nutrient-dense foods like, um, I mean, they say organ meats, but poached egg yolk and bone broth and caviar and then things like avocado, root vegetable, banana, high enzyme foods like mango, kiwi, are really good first foods for babies. Then you can move into the pectin-containing fruits like apples and pears that have been lightly cooked. I mean, it's it's very compelling to me. So I'll, that's just what I, I felt comfortable doing. It made the most sense for us. Baby Lamore sprouted those molars right around a year, which is kind of early, but every baby is different. That It happens sometime between one and two years, basically. So I've been doing sprouted grains, namely quinoa and rice and corn, And I just recently started doing, at 15, 16 months, sprouted wheat. I've been doing some of the Ezekiel products, although avoiding the ones that have soy in them. So there's one version of those Ezekiel sprouted uh, English muffins that doesn't have soy, which I am more comfortable doing. So for myself, I generally, my preference is to be gluten-free. And this is very complicated for me, and it actually ties into a lot of the work that I did with a medical intuitive over the course of two years. Very, very 
complicated experience for me. And I did a reflection video and a reflection podcast at different points in time on Patreon. So that is information that I don't really want to blast out publicly for a lot of reasons. Uh, it was a complicated experience for me. And it's I just feel com- more comfortable talking about it in the small and um, intimate community that is Patreon. Have you been enjoying Your Purpose's Beauty? You can unlock exclusive episodes of this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash l'amour et la musique. For $3 per month, you gain access to one exclusive episode published on the first Monday of every month. You receive a private RSS feed link to add to your podcast player of choice, or you can listen directly on Patreon. In these exclusive episodes, I expound on more personal, potentially controversial, or thought-provoking topics that are suited to an intimate community. If you're interested in more, there are other tiers of support that include a poll-based monthly exclusive video produced for the Patreon community, individual video-based correspondence, live Get Ready With Me makeup videos and skincare routines, and astrology of beauty and Venus readings from a classical perspective. Patreon funds directly support the production of this podcast, as well as other Lamore content. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to Your Purpose is Beauty, and now back to today's episode. So I'm going to leave the gluten-free stuff there. It's my preference. I'm not super militant about it. Um, Something that I've been exploring actually along with the work of Zach Bush, I recently did decide to pick up his Gut Health Ion Restore, I think it's called, product, which... I'll link it below for you to go read about. It's just going to be a case of whether or not you feel resonant with him and what he's trying to do. I did a query on Instagram about how people felt about it, and the, the response is very mixed. I think some people feel that it's you know an important mission and the product is is worthwhile, and some people felt like they took it and it did nothing. So it's basically a product. It's like a liquid mineral supplement. I think I got a 30-day supply for myself, and then I got the kids version too to start periodically giving to baby Lamore. It's a liquid mineral supplement that is supposed to alleviate the effects of glyphosate residue on produce or foods that you might be consuming because none of us obviously can eat a pristine diet. And it's supposed to alleviate the effects of leaky gut that can come with gluten, like too much gluten exposure, basically. Now, obviously, everyone is going to digest and metabolize food differently. And also, you know, there are different things that can happen throughout the course of someone's life that trigger an immune response that comes out of nowhere. And again, that's beyond the scope of this podcast, but I had an aunt, my mom's younger sister actually developed adult onset celiac and has just had a whole host of very, very damaging bacterial gut health problems. So these kinds of things can just come out of nowhere, you know? And so my approach has always been to be aware of that and to just be conscious of how to continually over time support the integrity of my microbiome and my gut health. And it's complicated. You know, it's, it's my, it was like my approach to rebuilding and rebalancing my body after many years of disordered eating and hormonal birth control. You know, it's not something that happens overnight. And it's really kind of, again, to bring it back to this critique I have of this eco well perspective or this you know, contrary and really pissed off at green beauty perspective, you know, just because you're not experiencing a negative health outcome right now, I just think it really behooves us to be aware of the ways that these things can manifest later in life. And of course, linking them to lifestyle habits or a toxic environment, that things that are completely beyond our control too, that just are part and parcel of being a human on the earth today you know, it's very difficult to do that. But yeah, like, again, the only person you can trust is yourself and your own discernment through these topics. So I really want to kind of wrap this up because I've been talking for a really long time. One of my goals is to get back into fermenting because I do completely believe in the power of home fermentation and buying fermented foods at Whole Foods is, is obviously really overpriced, as I think we all know. I really believe that mineralizing the body is incredibly, incredibly important. I take a like several trace mineral supplements and then remineralizing the body and these things that you don't think are directly related to health and nutrition but it's kind of all connected. So, you know, therapeutic bathing as a way to realkalize the body, detox heavy metals out of the body has been something that's been really important in my health journey. Remineralizing and focusing on the microbiome, 
I want to find like a, a really, really good homeopath and potentially explore that. I'd really like to research cell salts. That's something that really speaks to me. So all of this kind of stuff is related. And I feel like I'm just going to always be someone that's learning and evolving my perspective because, you know, nothing is static. The last thing before I close out with a couple of resources to leave you with, not directly related to traditional foods or nourishing foods, but I really, really, really think that the quality of water, drinking water that we drink day in, day out is paramount to health. I'm totally okay if you want to call me a conspiracy theorist in thinking that municipal water supplies are not to be trusted, but I have felt in my heart for many years that they're not. So that's just how I feel. I grew up in upstate New York drinking water from a well. We had an artesian well. So that was the water that I had growing up. And I'm really thankful for that now. I mean, potentially it had some other kinds of contaminants in it, like who knows, right? But it was good water. And I feel like, you know, obviously I spent many years too drinking just like filtered Brita water. And I just, I'm not persuaded by any of the filtration systems, even like the high-end ones that have come out, like the Berkey water filter. We get spring water from Whole Foods. We don't even do a water delivery. We just get gallons of spring water from Whole Foods. I have totally converted Kaveh to this. I think at first he thought it was a little bit like overkill, but over time, he's really gotten on board because, well, first of all, I was pregnant. So he obviously thought, you know, yeah, if you want to drink spring water, obviously that's fine. But we ended up getting a letter <laughs> from, I don't like some local clerk county or government official saying that there were unusually high levels of lead in water that you know could have affected our our municipality or where we live. So they phrase these kinds of things very vaguely to not make you think like, oh my gosh, like let's induce a panic around this. But you know, Flint, Michigan, like need I say more? And it's not to induce fear, but it is to say that this is a very, very, very real problem. And if you live in an urban area particularly, I think that it's not that much effort to get gallons of spring water at the grocery store. And like, I think it's really important. I just don't trust municipal water supply, even filtered. And that's just what I feel comfortable with. So take that you know, for what you will. I'm sure someone will yell at me about having to recycle the plastic containers, but it's something that I'm like totally okay with taking on for the benefits that come from drinking a high quality water supply. I should have mentioned one of these things earlier because it's a very old reference. It was a book that was a real turning point for me and I should have mentioned it about acupuncture, but it's called Balance Your Hormones, Balance Your Life by Claudia Welch. She is a TCM practitioner, acupuncturist, as well as an Ayurvedic doctor. So she kind of interfaces with all of these alternative healing modalities. She may even have a Western medical certification or training background as well. That book was incredibly pivotal and life-changing for me. And if it could benefit any of you, I am happy to pass that recommendation on. I still recommend it to everybody because it was just so, so pivotal for me. The last thing I want to say is in lieu of... There's so many ways, right, to ascertain what's right for my constitution. You know, all of us are such beautiful, unique snowflakes that have very, very different needs at different points in our life, right? You know, women in like prime childbearing mode, if they're interested in having children, are going to have different needs than like a 65-year-old man, right? Like everybody is so, so different. And there is no one-size-fits-all approach, obviously. Someone who I think tackled this really well and really beautifully and from an approach that really resonated with me is my favorite medical astrologer, Claire Gallagher. She has a podcast called The Cosmic Lifestyle Podcast. The episode from April 25th, on Claire's Cosmic Lifestyle podcast feed is my vegan story and a peek into my astro nutrition practice. So she has just a really, really interesting perspective. Even if you don't feel drawn to astrology or incorporating astrology into like a medical astrology understanding into how you might get dietary guidance, that's something I actually think is very, very valuable. But hearing her own like rehabilitation out of veganism and into, I mean, I, she and I eat quite similarly. Um, she's a little bit, I think, more low sugar and no grain. 
but fascinating perspective. And she reiterates a lot of what I feel like I'm trying to get across, which is like everybody is just so different. And like, I'm not trying to be prescriptive at all. The point of this episode was really just to tell all of you what works for me, what works for my family and the the directions that I'm interested in. Oh, I should have mentioned that I really want to get back into making bone broth regularly too. That's something that I think should just be a mainstay practice for everybody because it's such a nutritious food with so many trace minerals and collagen and like all of that good stuff. And it's obviously a very old practice too. And I'm such a soup freak. I love making soup. It's like my favorite thing ever. So I want to get back into making bone broth and I'm still forever contemplating whether or not I want to get an instant pot. I still haven't done it. I used to have a slow cooker to make bone broth in. I do have like just a regular stock pot I could make it in as well, but I don't know. It's nice to let it cook for, you know, 12, 18, 24 hours. So I'm, I'm thinking Instant Pot is the way to go, but I still haven't pulled the trigger. All right, if you guys made it through this whole episode, thank you so, so much. I would absolutely love to engage in conversation with you about these topics. If you have opposing viewpoints or aligned viewpoints, just communicating respectfully around all of this stuff, I am here for it. I learned so much from you. You send me the most insightful emails and DMs. And I, I just, I appreciate you so much. So thank you for taking the time to listen. I'll be back next week with another brand founder interview that I'm really excited for you to hear. I hope you all have a really great week and I'll see you soon. Bye.